I think knowing when to say something and knowing when not to say something is probably the most important, most important thing for a caddy. And I heard this quote not too long ago, and it really resonated with me is speak when you have something to say, not when you want to be heard. And I think that's very important as a caddy. And also as a medical sales rep, when you're in the operating theater with a surgeon, like if you say something, you better be right. I'm Roberto, engineer turned PGA tour player turned businessman. And I'm Dan, businessman on the weekdays and average golfer on the weekends. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest people in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. All right. Welcome to the Course Record Show. We are joined by Ryan Bauckham. Ryan had a long stint caddying on the PGA Tour, played college football at the University of North Carolina, and uh, transitioned into the business world uh, a few years ago and is in the medical business now. Uh, Bauck, going to start with the easiest icebreaker of all time. You were featured in arguably the best golf video on YouTube, uh, a video so comedically perfect that even Jerry Seinfeld in 40 years of comedy couldn't have written anything so perfectly timed. How often do people ask you about it? Is it a daily thing, hourly thing? Talk to me. It's quite interesting. Uh, there are some times <laughs> about every, I'd say it's about every 90 days, uh, sometimes as long as 180 days, every three to six months, I'll get a bunch of pings, Twitter, Instagram, Oh, is this you? Is this you? <laughs> and I see all these like notifications. I was like, oh no, it's been posted again. And it's usually on a Monday because if golf were a Monday, this would be it. And it's, it's a video of Hudson Swafford hitting the divot that moved the ball in the midst of, I guess it was at a time, web.com finals event in Columbus, Ohio. And it happens quite a bit. It, it's kind of simmered down, but now that I've, we brought it back up, I'm sure it's, it's going to post here in the next week or so. Good, good. So for, those, for the listeners out there, Google Hudson Swafford divot and just enjoy. About every 90 to 180 days, I'm having a terrible day and I watch that video and it just brings me back. So, Yeah, I mean, it, it was great because it was in a very tense moment and he's fighting for his tour card for the first time. And this happens and we're like, you've got to be kidding me <laughs> that, this, that this actually happened. And the rules official comes over and he says, well, that's a one-shot penalty. And the moment was just so tense. And I just, I just knew that it was time to say something. I said, well, can he at least clean it? <laughs> and Tom Hearn, he looked at me, he's like, yeah, he, he can clean it. And it was you could feel like all the tenseness in the air just kind of go away, which is, that's one of the times where I, I decided to say something and it was the right time to say it. And then he got it up and down for par. So it was great. That's hilarious. When he swings his leg across his other foot. And then at the same <laughs> moment, you kind of put your hand on your hip. I'm telling you, it could not be more perfect. Could not be more perfect. Yeah. Oh man. That's uh, that was a nightmare at the time, but uh, it worked out. But we try to talk about the business of golf on the course record show. So, Dan, maybe you can sober us up and bring us back to that. Had the official said you could not clean the ball, would you have regretted asking your question? 
Uh, yeah, that would have been terrible. But I, I felt uh, like 99.9% confident that we could do it. So that's the only reason why I said it. All right. I just knew right, something had to be said. And I was like, this is, this is what I'm going with right here. I love it. That's so good. So we talk a lot about on the show about the economics of the business of golf. So from a caddy's perspective, what are the economics like? Walk us through the weekly rate of expenses. Tell, take us into the pocketbook of a caddy. That's a, that's a great question. I know it's the, it's the loaded question that everyone wants to know. Typically, there's a, there's a salary involved, and then you'll get a percentage of winnings. And I think there's like a perception in the public that caddies make bukus of money. And that couldn't be any farther from the truth, unless you're in the top 10. Your player's in the top 10 maybe top 20 now because because purses have increased since I've been out there. But you typically get a salary. I mean, I've heard as low when I was out there, 2017 was my last year, as low as like $1,200 a week. It could have been as high as probably, I don't know, two twenty five hundred bucks a week, maybe more. I'd say most guys are probably around 1500 bucks a week to 1800 a week. And then you've got uh, some players that would be 10, seven, five is like kind of the old school way of playing out 10% for a win, 7% for a top 10, 5% for everything else. Some guys were 10 and eight, some guys were 10, eight, six. Roberto might be able to share his insight on how he, he compensated uncle Rusty or, and others. And then there's, there's other guys I've heard that gave like 12% for a win. Cause they said, Hey, like if we just won, like I'm two more years on the tour. Why, why shouldn't I share it with my caddy? who was there with me every step of the way. In terms of breaking even, uh, there was a lot of hotels on the West Coast because that's usually a tough way to start the year because you go to Hawaii and then you go to, at the time, I think it was Palm Springs, not very cheap, then LA, San Diego. And it's, you, you miss three or four cuts in a row and it's like, you're in the hole as a caddy. And that's even staying at like the places that just don't have roaches. <laughs> for lack of better words. But if you have one good week, you can all can flip around. I like the concept of paying your caddy 12% on wins. Not something I ever had to worry about, but like before the purse has kind of popped in the last couple of years, a PGA tour win is a $2 million win because by the time you add in what you're going to make at the tournament at the uh, Maui, what you're going to make in equipment deal bonuses, your end of year bonuses, you're now in line for, if you win 1.1 officially, it's really about a $2 million win. So I like bumping that up to 12%. That's a good call. So if you're with your guy down on the Corn Ferry Tour, you're really making a bet on them to make it big, to get their card, and then do well from there, right? There's, I mean, everything you quoted sounds like PJ Tour numbers. I have to imagine things take a serious step back when you go to Corn Ferry numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's not quite half, but it's probably 70% of what the PJ Tour payout is. But it's some, some lean times. And it's like, we used to do three caddies in a room and uh, two beds. And uh, guys didn't really want to sleep with each other. So I had a rule. Guys that would roll with me, it's like, hey, high man sits on the floor. So you're really pulling for your player to play well. So you actually got the bed. That's tough. <laughs> The floor is better than the rollaway, though. I've stayed in, I've stayed three in many tour events. I'd rather be on the floor than the rollaway. <laughs> I like the alignment of incentives, though. I like that you ride or die down to your your nightly routine with your player. Well, see, I love that because I was always betting on my player. Like I always believed in them. If I didn't believe in them, 
he wasn't going to believe it himself. And that's, that's a big part of that caddy player combo. Yeah. So when you got to the tour, I think you probably are, we probably were on tour during similar stretches. I feel like there was a bit of a cultural shift on the tour away from older, more experienced caddies towards younger, more educated, like a lot of, I felt like your generation caddies had either played college golf or known their player growing up. Is that accurate? Did, did you feel like that was a shift happening on tour when you got out there? Yeah. I mean, I would say that I was part of that. I was just very fortunate and lucky to be there during that time, but you could definitely see like when I was coming out, it, it started to really shift of guys wanted their buddy. They played junior golf with their whole career or their, their whole time growing up. Plus, it may have been a buddy that's been struggling on the mini tour and is like, hey, come out and caddy for me for a few weeks to yeah. get you some money to back. back. And I think they just wanted someone closer to their, to their age and kind of understood what they were going through instead of, I guess, the old guard that had been there for so long. And, and this caddying it used to be show up, shut up and keep up. It's not that anymore. It's a lot of data driven analysis, a lot of statistics telling you, like, this is the smart play. This is the way you play this hole. And there's a lot more homework that goes into it every night before you play. Weather, wind, when to, when to attack a pin and when to not. And you go through those things together as a player in a caddy and you, you come up with a game plan. In the, in the corporate world, managing up and telling your boss no or you're wrong or do B when you said A is always hard. I imagine in the caddying line of work, it's got to be really, really hard. Like what, what are some of the lessons from that aspect of the job do you think translate well in a business in terms of making that conversation more effective? That's a good question. I think you just have to have conviction. You can be wrong as long as you have like the effort there and the, the data to support your reason and your rationale. It could be wrong, but as long as you have conviction in it, they'll be more receptive to your input. What do you think is the most important on-course skill for a tour caddy? And then what is the most important off-course skill for a caddy? They might be the same thing. Okay. And I'm thinking more of after caddying, how I've translated that into my, my newer role. I think knowing when to say something and knowing when not to say something is probably the most important, most important thing for a caddy. And I heard this quote not too long ago, and it really resonated with me is speak when you have something to say not when you want to be heard. And I think that's very important as a caddy and also as a medical sales rep, when you're in the operating theater with a surgeon, like if you say something, you better be right. So let's unpack that, Ryan. So what, what are good moments to say things and what are bad moments to say things that you've learned through experience? Caddying, and there's gonna be a lot of like relating these two together, caddying and, and, and interacting with surgeons, um, when they're asking you a question, they almost always know the answer already. <clears throat> they just want to be confirmed in their decision and what they're thinking. So any moment you provide a little bit of doubt in their mind, now it's like five steps back. Like, ah, is, is the wind like this? Or am, am, I, am I putting this plate in the right position here? Like, it's the worst thing you could do. But if it is going in a bad spot, you just say, hey, stop or slow down. Let's take a moment. Let's take a step back. Let's go through this again. This is our plan. This is what we're trying to do here. Do we feel like we're on the right path together? And then when you're in agreement and then you proceed. 
So it's more about getting that comfort and confidence and, and knowing that you're on the right path. It's very beneficial in, in the medical side, but also caddy. Ryan, walk us through your decision to step away from the tour and cross over into the business medical world. Well, I guess it was 2016, 17. I was caddying for Price Carnet. He was top, I think he would have been 150 or maybe just outside of 150. So uncertain on how many starts he'd get the next year. We had, we had had our first daughter six months prior. And I could just tell that I didn't want to be away from my family as much as a caddying can take from you. And I know that my wife didn't sign up to be a single parent. So I decided to, to make that transition. And I, I had some friends that were in medical sales that, that played college sports and just said, hey, like this is high energy. It's got the juice. I know that you've been in these high pressure situations. You, you probably need something like that that's in the field, not sitting at a desk all day. So I just put my head down and and... LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, whatever avenue, emails to get in front of someone. And I did get in front of the guy that I work with now, and he knows nothing about sports. And I told him what I do as a caddy. And I could tell about halfway through, he just looked at me and he's like, I'm a caddy. Like, I do exactly what you do just in the operating room. And I was like, oh, well, I thought this might, these skills might translate, but I wasn't sure because I've never been in the operating room. So from there, it just kind of blossomed from there. And we've got a good little team here in Charlotte and the rest is history, I guess. You mentioned wanting to juice that competitive action. I know you come from an athletic background, but what, why was that such an appealing thing to continue? I, I could, I would have expected the opposite, right? Like, get me out of that game. Give me something so much more stable and predictable, et cetera. But, but you, you, you still wanted that to be a part of your, your, your career. Why is that? I just need it. If you've played any sports at any point in your life, like I loved being, even as a caddy, in the moment where this shot meant the difference of 50 grand, 100 grand, 100 to 250, 250 to 500. Like <clears throat> I just wanted that pressure. I wanted the, I love that feeling that it gets. It's like, because you can still fail and succeed and learn that like, Hey, next time this comes, this comes up, like I'm going to be prepared because I've gone through it this one time. Like I know how I felt. I know how I reacted next time I'm going to do this. And it's, I just love the, the adrenaline rush of making a sale or making the right call in a club or hitting a winning putt in a match at the, at the golf course I'm a member of. You just, I like to compete. How did you get into caddying though, after playing college football, graduating from Carolina. How'd you get into caddy? So I was working at Chabot Country Club. Uh, I worked there while in school playing football because if you work there, you can play golf after two o'clock. So I was like, I'll work here so I can play golf during the summer when I'm doing workouts, all this stuff. So afterwards, graduate 2007, I had, I was like full-time employee there. I was like, I'm going to hang out here for a little bit. I'm going to play golf every day. I'm going to be a cart, work in the cart cart barn and work in the golf shop and then 2008 happens and it's like friends of mine are like they lost their jobs like they have no health insurance no benefits they're out of, out of work it's like oh this isn't so bad i play golf every day at two o'clock this is great so then it got to a point where people were pressing me like hey why don't you be a golf pro i was like i don't want to fold shirts and answer the phone every day if i get mr and mrs smith off at three o'clock on the back nine like i just don't want to do this so I talked to Jeremy Elliott, uh, who you may know, 
Cheech. Um, yeah, I work, I work with him now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he was a member at Chapel Hill and he played golf at Carolina. We didn't overlap, but it was like he finished and I, I started at Carolina. And he knows I love golf. And I said, hey, I know you represent like a lot of big dogs on the tour. I was like, if at any point somebody needs a caddy for a week, I'd love to just like get out of here, go do it. Like, I know it's, it may not be anybody that anybody knows. I was like, I just love to do it. He's like, all right. So then he, he calls me. It's probably two months, three months later. He's like, hey, I got this guy. He just graduated from the University of Georgia. He's doing Q school, first stage in Pinehurst. I was like, we're in Pinehurst. He's like, Pine Wild. I was like, great. I've played there like 20 times. He's like, okay, cool. Yeah, big guy, really good. You want a caddy for him? I was like, oh, one of the dates. And he tells me, I was like, let me just check. So boss is like, yeah, you can do it. He's like, here's his number. His name is Hudson Swafford. I was like, okay. So I text him. He's like, show up at Sunday at like three o'clock or something. So I, I pull up to Pine Wild. Uh, he's like, he's got a Tahoe or something. So I pull up, I see this big unit getting out of this Tahoe. <laughs> right. And I, I'm like, looking. I was like, I think that's him. And I was like, are you HUD? And he says, are you bulk? <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, I said, I guess I'm your caddy this week. And he's like, well, let's go. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he made it through the first stage and he says, Hey, you want to do the second stage? I was like, well, when is it? And where is it? And at that point, it was probably like first of November or, or October. He's like the ombre. I was like, "Where the hell is oh ombre?" Oh my he's gosh! Like, Come he's on, like Panama, Panama City, Florida. I was like, "Okay." So I go back and I like look it up. I'm like, "God, this is like a ten hour drive from Chapel Hill." I was like, "Yeah, I'll do it." So go down there. He makes it through. He's oh. like, "You want to do the final stage?" He's just going to gloss like, over the ombre that quickly. He just makes it through. That place is an absolute nightmare. Well, that place is a nightmare. It's a shame that place is no longer. Is it, is it? Did that they closed? Yeah, I think it closed. I, I don't know if they put houses or condos or what, but that golf course, if you weren't hitting it in the center, you might have shot ninety, and you could be like a tour pro. I did um, and it gets windy. There. I did second <laughs> stage there my first time right out of college, and you said I'll never go back. <laughs> and I, I was like three inside the number going into the last day, but I was like. I was faking it. I mean, I had a literal heart attack for three days, but I like kept it in between the stakes and kind of chipped and putted. And I'm driving home after three rounds and I'm like, I got no chance tomorrow. Like there's no way. And I shot like 81 the last round, but like I, that golf course is stakes, 35 yards of grass stake on the other side. And it blows 20 across on every hole and it's fucking Q school. It's yeah, it is awful. It's well, so and it's bad. like, it's end of October, or early November. So like on a warm day, it's like, even in Florida, it was like 65 on a warm yeah. day. Yeah. But I, I remember vividly, like I follow golf. Right. But I, I was like, this is like, Oh, Tommy, Tommy armor's over there. Oh, boo weekly's here. It's like you go on the list. There's like 25 guys that like just lost her card. Yeah. I was like, shit, what are we doing here? And then like, after you play it, you're like, Oh, this is why they play here because they're used to playing like golf courses like this. some diabolical holes. I mean, that, that places, I didn't mean to gloss over it. I just figured there might've been some bad memories there at some point. I don't even have a bad memory. Like I just knew like people were like, Oh my, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I, I'm fine. Like I was faking it for three days. I couldn't, you can't fake it around that place for 72 holes. 
anyway, I'm of like the last generation that would have like had all those memories. It would be more like the older guys than me that have like the real war stories from the ombre because I never went back and they stopped using it as a venue, but they had been using it for 30 years as a venue. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. So sorry, carry on. That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) To to pick, to pick back up. He's like, Hey, you want to do the final stage? I was like, well, where is this? I mean, looking back at it, it's like, I didn't even think to like research, like, Hey, what if this guy like makes it all the way through? Cause I, cause I honestly thought I was like, I'll do this for one week. This guy's going to have like a regular caddy. Right. Yeah. So I was like, I'm just filling it in because it's in Pinehurst is two hours away or an hour and a half away. And you know, he kept asking me and I was like, oh, why did I never like think like, Hey, this guy can make his kids tour card. Like, I could be his caddy. I never thought about it. I, I will take it back because just for the first stage. <clears throat> so he shot, I think he shot 67 at Pinewall the first round. Okay, five under. I was like, damn, all right, all right, this guy can play. Next round, shoot 77. So we're back to even. And I was like, oh, shit. So I, I rode with him to the golf course that day, and he had he had an orange, like, hunting cap in his backseat. Okay. So I said, hey, man. I said, you mind if I wear this cap today? He, like, looked at me like all weird. Uh, he's like, yeah, I guess. I said, oh, we're going to go hunt some birds. So that that's where the orange cap started initially nice. was, was I said that to him. So then I started wearing it. And then, so it goes back. He's like, you want to do final stage? And I said, yeah, where is it? When is it? Oh, it's December, 1st of December, Palm Springs, California. I said, okay. So I show up. And when you walk down from Laking, from PJ West, and you walk down that hill, right? There's 154, 156 guys in Q school finals. Yeah. Okay. And, and what, 80% of them have a black cap or a white cap. And then the other, like 19% have like a navy blue cap or like a red cap. No one's got an orange cap. So I'm sitting out there in an orange cap and he's like, oh, there's Balk. And he knows exactly where to go. I'm down in the range. I've got a spot. So, so people would always ask me about the orange cap, and that's where it started. And I just kind of took it from there. But missed his tour card by two shots. Yeah. So I got him full full status on the nationwide tour at the time. And he's like, hey, you want to do this full time? He's like, oh, and by the way, the first three events are Panama, Colombia, and Chile. <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh, well, let me think about it for a minute. I think yes, but I just need to like think about it. And went on from there. Wow. What year was that at Q School? Palm Springs, though, would have been 2011. So maybe it was 11. Yeah, I was at that one. Yeah. It was uh, freezing cold three of the days, it, right? Yeah, it was, it was very cold. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, he was, and he was paired with Harris the first two rounds. Oh, God. So you, you, so you had people calling Harris Hud and Hud Harris. I mean, the joke lives on. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I thought your story in the first stage where you went to the Tahoe, I thought you were going to run into Harris. I thought that's where, <laughs> I thought that's where this was going. A guy who played golf in Georgia drives a Tahoe doesn't narrow it down. That's <laughs> yeah, sure. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, that's, ha- that's half the damn tour as much as I hate to say it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's funny. Well, that is a wild story. I love that. I think the funniest part is that you weren't even like looking at where the next stage was. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I look back at that now and I'm like, what, what an idiot. Like you didn't even think like you're going to maybe do this more than once. Or like if he made it, he might ask you to do the next one. I really thought like, 
this would just be a one-time deal and have fun and you know go back to it. That's funny. A quick word from our sponsor. So true story. I'm into pretty classic style. That's why I like Holderness and Born. They make classics done really well. So I've sat out the whole Prince trend. I kind of thought it would be like Argyle. They would come and go, leaving only regrets. But Alex and John at H&B put their unique spin on the print polo. So no oversized flowers or crazy patterns, but rather small, tasteful prints. Last week, I took the plunge and wore the Porter shirt to Southern Hills when I was at the PGA. And honestly, I felt amazing in it. The fabric is great, and the look is modern but understated. And it's a nice change of pace from the stripes and the solids. Give the Porter, the Patton, and the best-selling Duncan Polo a look at hbgolf.com. That's hbgolf.com. All right, back to our conversation with Ryan Bauckham. What other caddy do you see on tour today who would be really good at making the transition from caddying to corporate America? Uh, I mean, I think it goes back to, to what Roberto said at the beginning. Is there's been a big shift of more educated guys as caddies that have a tremendous amount of skills and knowledge and they understand like when to say something, when not to say something they have like rationale to back it up. I think there's a lot of those guys out there. I mean, you could go down the list and I could probably say yes, 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 yes. There might be one no of the top 20 caddies that may not make it. And it may just be like, a weird fit and <clears throat> another thing that I've learned from the guy that I work with now is <clears throat> whenever we're looking to hire um, someone else to our team we basically have three questions will they do the job can they do the job and are they a good fit and a lot of times like the first two an- first two get answered really quickly like and the third one's like ah I'm not sure if it's a good fit and a lot I can see like there's a lot of that with caddies there are a lot of good caddies that have had success with one guy and then yeah. they go to someone else who may be better like on paper and they just have a terrible time. And it may just be like a bad fit because maybe that player is looking for someone to be like, Hey man, I just want to come out here and talk about football, basketball, what you ate last night, anything but golf. And then other guys that want to be overly analytical. Like what about this? What's the win? What's this? And it has to be like a very good fit. Okay, so if, if a lot of guys can make that transition into corporate America or have that kind of skill set, who's got the highest upside? Who's the, who's the future board member in a caddy bib today? I mean, the, the first one that really jumps out is probably Ted Scott because I think he can, he can talk to anyone. He's very well liked. Um, yeah, I mean, he's the one that really jumps out to me. I thought you were going to say Greller. Well, I think Greller would be good, but I don't – I thought about him, but the thing is, I think just Teddy, like Teddy's the one that I'm just like, if I'm betting on anyone, it's him. And like, yeah, like I feel like Greller's the more, he's the COO guy. Like, I don't think he's the CEO guy. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It it totally makes sense. He also came from a teaching background, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think just personality strengths and weaknesses, people that are teachers are very nurturing and have a really commendable skills but maybe aren't the aligned closely with like tremendous business success that's there's a reason they went into teaching because they're just better at it yeah i just feel like teddy scott could be the guy that he could be ripping your heart out but he'd be smiling doing it and you you, you'd be like what this is supposed to hurt but it's like not and what's this is what's is weird (laughs) that's the low-key louisiana 
yeah deal right all right i'll ask you another question similar to previous what is the most important on course skill for a tour player and what's the most important off course skill for a tour player um on course skill i think is keeping an even keel not getting too high not getting too low i mean i've seen guys that can run real hot and and i've seen guys that can go real and get high real quick and then crash and then you look at a lot of the guys that like like Dustin or you'd say even Harris, like they could be five or six under par and you wouldn't know if they were six under par or six over. Like it's the same. Yeah. And and people can say it's boring. More cow is probably the same. It's just like they lull you to sleep and it's like, oh, this guy shot 20 under this week. And it looks like he didn't even break a sweat. He wasn't, he wasn't laughing. He wasn't throwing clubs. Just, oh, just going about my deal. What about off course? when you're living it 30 weeks a year and you're spending morning, noon and night with players, I feel like caddies have a really insightful look at players off course lives. And I think that is an underrated part of being a professional golfer. What would you say that you've seen as being the most important attribute there? I think just caring about people just in general, how they treat people, like how they treat people that's at at dinner that night or, the, the guy in the locker room or whatever it is. And, and you as a caddy, there's like this weird line where you can't be like too close with your caddy, or at least it seems that way, like taboo, like, but it is nice. Like every once in a while, to like you go out and you like, you have a beer or you have dinner and you don't talk about golf. You're like, Hey man, how's the family doing? Like what's, yeah. how's your life? And it's more about caring because if they have that, if they have that it factor that they care about you, <clears throat> they're invested in you as a, in you as a caddy and that caddy is going to be tenfold more invested in you as a player to do everything they can to help you be successful because caddies are very weird people i say that in that we want people like our whole focus is to help our player be the most successful player they can be and you can be selfish about that right it's like some caddies can be like well i helped this guy win well, I didn't see you hitting shots, right? Like <laughs> the player won. Yeah. We're invested in helping them achieve a goal. And that's like, to me, I, that's what I love the most is like, you can have an impact, a very small impact on someone's career, someone's. And that's, I think that's another reason why Greller has been so good at it from his teaching background. Yeah. He has a genuine care and he wants Jordan to be as successful as possible. So you've got the most unique background to answer this next question. You're a former collegiate student athlete, former caddy, and now you're in the business world. So let's talk NIL. Do you see that as a good thing for college sports or as a big red flag? It's somewhat of a double-edged sword, but I think it's great. I think you've already, you're already starting to see that it's saving college basketball per se and that these guys, instead of leaving early after a year, which I think the one year thing was ridiculous. Like it should be go after high school or do the three years like baseball does. It's just a much cleaner thing. Now I know there's a lot of data that says, well, high school guys, it's, you know, what one in a million or whatever that make it, we get that. But I think it, it allows these guys to like still stay in college, get their degree, still be compensated based on the market. And I think that's great. Like I, the, the double-edged side of that is what you're going to see as a, over the next few years, I think a, 
even larger disparity between the big time schools and the big time conferences and everyone else. Because they're just going to have access to more capital and more deals to set this up. So yeah. Alabama, Ohio State, I mean, you can say Florida, like all the blue bloods of football, they're just, they're only going to get bigger, right? And same for us in basketball, Carolina, Duke, Kansas, like it, it's only going to keep going for us, the gap. But I think it's good because we, like as much as they wanted to say we're amateurs, we weren't amateurs. <laughs> Right. I mean, they're selling your jersey in the in the student store for 75 bucks and you get nothing for it. Like, and that's fine because I wasn't a star player. I was a guy that that played and nobody knew my name. And I didn't want people to know my name because if they knew my name, I messed up. That means my name was in the newspaper for messing up. So I think it's good. I think that I don't know what protections they can put in place to to I guess keep that gap from widening so much, but I think it's good overall. Yeah, I think it's certainly interesting to follow that my whole thing that I keep watching is like the diversion of capital from the athletic association and the school towards the players. And I, I think that's, that's the thing I'm most interested to, to follow. And it's I need to do a little deeper dive and see how much that's happening, Dan, but that's always been my thesis. Yeah. I, I think the, I mean, Ryan went right to the big sports, right? The, the big money makers in terms of football and, and basketball. I'm curious to see how it trickles down into some more under the radar college sports like golf, right? In terms of like, hey, you get a couple star players here and there who they can get some beer money through NIL that they wouldn't have otherwise in a way that sort of starts to, to change the landscape. Do you think the same effect of making the powerhouses stronger would happen in a sport like golf or volleyball or tennis or just really in the two, two big sports you mentioned, Ryan? I mean, I think you're good. The, the most measurable impact is going to be in those two, right? Because they're the they're the revenue generators. Like, even in North Carolina, like basketball is a big part of our our university and what people know us for. But football drives like a lot of the budget for all the other sports, right? So I think there there may be some trickle down at some point, but it's all going to get diverted to those two first, right? And unfortunately, or fortunately, however whatever side of the coin you're on. I think there could be some that, that trickle down to the other sports. I mean, it, off the top of my head, I mean, you're probably thinking about Oklahoma State, Georgia, Georgia Tech, golf, right? Like yeah, whoever think... gets it, whoever gets it first, it's going to be those programs. It's not going to be like name some random team. Yeah, but I could see a non-traditional <laughs> golf powerhouse kind of ascending pretty quickly. If you had one or two boosters that really wanted to take that as their passion project, it takes like insane resources to turn around a football team, right? But like, think about a mid-major. You get the right coach, you get the right recruiting angle, you get money via NIL. I think you could take a smaller non-Power 5 school and make them really good, but we'll see if that happens or not. Okay, so... Ryan, we're going to switch to a kind of a quick hits round here. Dan leads kind of golf-centric questions called tap-ins, and then I'll follow up with a round of buy or sell. Favorite course on tour? Riviera. Not the ombre? Not the ombre. Okay. It's dear to my heart, but not the ombre. What's more fun, the PGA Tour or the Corn Ferry Tour? PGA Tour. Chicks dig the show. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest mistake of your caddying career? Q school, fifth round, eighth hole, PJ West, stadium course, 
talked HUD and hitting pitching wedge and all the golf course behind the front pin could have hit nine iron, hit pitch wedge in the water, made double, lost his tour card by two shots. Look at him now. He's got like two or three tour wins. You're, you guys are both doing great. I, that could have been your greatest yeah. success for all you know. Yeah, yeah, true. Favorite caddy to sit with during a rain delay? Oh, Wayne Birch. Yes. He's previous course record show guest. Yeah, because he's just, he's going to tell you like, he's going to tell you some like ridiculous story. And he, he, everyone just gravitates to it. I love Wayne. All right. Yardage book or rangefinder? Yardage book. Best ball striker you saw on tour? Ooh, that's tough. That's really tough. I know one pops right in your head. Who is it? Come on. I mean, I, I could say Harris English. I could say HUD. I can say Boo Weekly is another one that jumps out and like almost immediately. We'll accept that. Yeah, I, I think of those three, like they're all flushers. Did he say who you had in mind, Roberto? No, no. My answer is always Lucas Glover. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Lucas. Yeah. You did say ball striking. I you, said ball striking. <laughs> yeah, the, the putting was got me there for a little bit. Well, yeah. let's go there. Best putter you ever saw on tour. Best putter I've ever seen on tour? Russell Henley. No arguments here. Hey, Georgia. <laughs> that, guy can, that guy can roll it in a thimble. How it's, many Georgia guys I got to come up in this conversation? This is crazy. It's a video game. His putting yeah, is I, a video game. Yeah, I'm not trying to like – I'm not doing this because we're here with Roberto. I'm just <laughs> – this is just the fact. Yeah. I'm, no, I'm it a is, tech guy too. Yeah. I can't argue against against Russell as the best putter. It's crazy. All right. Biggest overachiever you saw on tour. Got the most out of the least. Most out of the least. Oh, man. I feel like whoever I say is going to be like an insult. No, it's not. It's going to be a compliment. Now, now I'm thinking, and maybe this is like too much, but I feel like Brian Gay has gotten a lot out of his game. Maybe maybe I'm wrong on that. And then also Jim Herman. I love Hermie. I'd agree with both of those. Yeah, I mean Brian Gay's <laughs> won six times on the tour. That's a he's that's a lot, a lot. And Herm has stacked yeah. up a couple wins too. Good for. I mean, I, I yeah. agree. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about the other side of it. I was like, who who's like underachieved? And that's the next I'm question. Not sure, if I'm taking your question. Don't I was steal like, it, man. Like, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Let, let me ask the questions here, please. Okay. 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 Biggest underachiever you saw in tour? In terms of wins, I, I love the guy, nice as can be, but Charles Howell III seems to jump out at me. Like, that guy should have won, like, 12 times. Yeah. I mean, he stripes it. He he, he always makes, like, one and a half million before he leaves the West Coast. It's <laughs> fascinating. This is a whole, should be a whole separate episode. You could <laughs> you could go all the way to Rory. Could be, Rory could be the answer uh, to that question. Yeah, yeah. DJ. DJ might be the answer to that question. Well, how many times has he won on tour? DJ. 20, 21 or something. 21? Rory's won like – who Who of Jason Day's only won 12 times? Yeah. Like, I hate to say only 12 times, but like that guy too. A lot of injuries. Was, yeah. He's from Columbus, so it's a lot of ouchy season, him and Urban. 
Sorry, boy. I had I had to go there. I, I don't like Ohio oh, State. Oh boy, so. it's, it's a few. If he was a few years younger, there'd be some kind of nil deal for him over in uh, in Columbus. I'm sure. Band aid. All right, last last happened for me. Are caddies overpaid or underpaid? I'd say underpaid. The guys now are underpaid. Hundred percent. All right, you survive all your tappings. Over to Roberto. All right, Bach, buy or sell Tesla. The stock or the or the car? Buy or sell Tesla stock. Right now, I'm buying. Buy or sell the future of a 50-team super league in college football. Buy. Buy or sell. Tougher to close. A tournament or a big sale? Oh, man. Two different cycles, per se. One is in the moment. Sometimes the sales cycle can take quite a time. I think... A big sale. It's tougher than close. Buy or sell the Saudi Golf League live series, whatever. Sell the Saudi shit. I, I'm I'm all for whatever thing replicates the team aspect a la Formula One. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's a good take. Buy or sell Netflix PGA Tour version of Drive to Survive since you brought it up. If they have 100% editorial control at Netflix, I'm buying it. Okay. If the PGA Tour has any input, then I'm out. I'm selling it. So what, what, what odds do you put on that happening? So you're selling it. <laughs> yeah, I'm selling it. Most likely, yes. This has been great. Thanks, Bach. This has yeah. been a great, really yeah, great awesome. conversation. I enjoyed it. Dan, uh, good conversation with Ryan Bauckham. Seven, eight, nine years caddying on the PGA Tour, transitioned into business. What were your takeaways? My takeaways, number one, if he told us all this good stuff, just imagine the stuff he can't tell us, right? Yeah. I know these, these, these caddies have a code of silence. They will take stuff to the grave. There's, so. There are so many niche golf podcasts now. How is there not one about like caddy stories from rain delays only? It would be a, a, it would go straight to the top of the charts if you asked me. The stories wouldn't end. Endless array of content. Yeah, no doubt. Of the things we did get on the course record show, there's lots to dig into. But first, before I give my first takeaway, I've got a question for you, Roberto. What's the business equivalent of Hudson Swafford hitting the divot onto the back of the ball? Oh my gosh. The, you know, the parallel has to be something harmless you do before the actual meeting. So let's say you have a big meeting with your boss or a client. What's something like harmless and just kind of procedural that happens before, but yet completely screws up your actual meeting? What, what's the answer to that? Like a handshake? The handshakes as you walk in the door? Could you... I mean, is it like... It's almost like you reach over to shake your client's hand and you accidentally slap him in the face. Is that, is that the equivalent? Well, that would be bad. <laughs> uh, that would not be great. I, I was thinking of two examples. Okay. So your premise of the, the meeting, the big meeting, sort of holds true in these, but not exactly. So the first one is you get an email with a bunch of people on it you think you're applying back to just one person and sort of yeah. exchanging an inside joke or making fun of someone, but you actually hit reply all. Yeah. When you, yeah. That's my first example, which I've personally done. I yeah. will say 
the second example, which I've not personally done, but I've witnessed is you write a proposal for one client uh, and then you write a proposal for a second client, but you don't change the client's name. Yeah. And their competitors. But it, it needs to be an equivalent. It has to be like a one shot penalty. It's not like you blew the whole day, right? It's just like you're, you just kind of set yourself back a little bit on accident. So yeah, both of those apply. Definitely. So let's, let's switch back to another part of the conversation here. We, we asked Bach in terms of who are their caddies who would be great business people and board members. What did you think of his choice there? He went with Ted Scott. Yeah, he went with Ted Scott and his reason was that he's very likable and he's just very like soft-spoken and he could rip your heart out, but do it with a smile on his face and you would almost thank him for it. I, I thought it was interesting, the whole point about being kind and being very candid, I almost expected the answer to be like your prototypical alpha. Right? Yeah. Like who's going to be the tough, uh, the, the, the tough guy. I say guy just because most caddies are guys nowadays, but uh, who's going to be the tough person who's going to make those hard calls. But he went with somebody more, much more heart led, you know, heart focused leader. Yeah. And I thought that was very telling of like how people perceive CEOs and board members to be today which is not what you would expect 20 years ago or so, right? You would expect a, a very different persona leader to come up. Yeah, he, you're right. He didn't go with like the Jack Welch type AAA personality. Yeah, but I mean, even in the boardroom, this is changing, right? I mean, you look at like examples, like I'll pick on a few, right? With Sundar Pichai, Google, or Satya Nadella at Microsoft, or like there's, there's this brand of leader that comes much more from that, that, that gentler school uh, yeah, that's been very successful, but, 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 and so things really are changing in terms of expectations there. I don't know if it's a generational thing or not. I'm not sure how to attribute it, but it's very, it's interesting to see that that might, what, what I expected did not live up in his answer. And it's very, very telling. Yeah. Yeah. It reflects the, the business world. So what about sort of the, the risk profile of being a caddy, right? You take a bat in a player, you're inherently not that much in control. And you're in an environment where it really pays off if your player makes it big, but really doesn't if they don't get very, very close to climbing Everest. Feels a lot like venture investing. What's your what's your take on how those two risk profiles compare? It's similar on the return side, but you can only make one bet as a caddy. That's the biggest difference. Venture investing is you make 10 or 20 or more investments. You hope one of them is a is a hundred X return. The caddy deal is like you really have you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Think about that model, but you only get to make one one bet. And it's tough and it's a constant game when guys are in between bags. You know, when I stopped playing my I only had one caddy, my longtime caddy. I mean, we've been on the phone the last, you know, year or two talking about who the next guy should be or who the next, hey, you know, this bag is open, or hey, have you heard about this guy on the corn ferry tour? Because he's doing exactly that, right? He's trying to find the next guy that he can have a good eight or 10 year run with. And I've told people this for a long time, like, if picking which guys are going to work out, and which guys aren't, is just a brutal business. It really is. There are some almost sure bets that anyone with a pulse could make, but the rest of it is really tough. Yeah, the point that you can't even get diversification is a really good one. And 
what's the reality? Like as a caddy, do you have much of a say in the bag or how do you, like, how do you position yourself to get that great bag? Cause it feels like the players got the, the, the power in that relationship and gets to chew, pick and choose. So how does that work for the caddy? Yeah, it's, it's t- totally one-sided. You're, you're correct. And, and the thing is, is you're betting on young players mostly, which are, can be kind of volatile and, you know, they'll go through a couple caddies where they figure out what they want, what they don't want, which is totally fair. Uh, it, it's, I would say it's just more of an exception like the Xander Shoffleys or the Jordan Speets that turn out to be great players and have kind of one caddy their whole career. I mean, look at Scheffler. He had uh, one caddy the first two, three years on tour and then switched now to Ted Scott. And so, that, I mean, that, it's just tough. It's, it's a real game of luck. Yeah. Yeah. So what about box transition to business, right? You, you're going, you went under, underwent a very similar pivot not that long ago. And what do you think about his pivot and how he made it work? A lot of the things he said really resonated with me. I think it's not unusual for someone who have been in professional golf to go into sales because you're just used to losing all the time. Professional golf is just one disappointment after another. So sales is no different, right? You're trying to call on a bunch of people, get to the next step and hope you get a a few wins along the way. And at the end of the year, you could have a really successful year. So that doesn't surprise me at all. And he even like alluded to, you know, a long sales cycle. And we asked him what was harder winning a tournament or winning a sale. He's got the personality, hard charging guy to just not get down on himself and keep pushing and be very successful. Yeah. I thought that was very fascinating. I I was also very, very captivated by how his, like his take on the actual tactics of what it takes to be a good salesperson or yeah. business person, right? We asked him like, what's, what's a trait of a good business person or a good player or a good caddy? And the answer was when to say something and when not to say something. Right. And by my reply, all example, I'd learned way too late how to do this really, really well in my career, but it's so, so true. Right. I mean, I, another mentor of mine told me like, if you're in a discussion, you're getting really like fired up about the topic, right? If it feels good, just don't say it. Right. If it feels like you're unloading on something or on a topic or on someone, especially just don't go there. And so that that's, you know, that I, I really resonated with his comments from that perspective. Um, but you know, his years of catting certainly give a much nuanced perspective on how to play his role really right in the right situations. Yeah. And, and think about like the transition. He's not managing people in his role right now. If you came from caddy, you never managed anybody, right? If, if you'd have come from coaching, Hey, I was a college coach or then a high school coach. And I want to transition to business. You're really good at dealing with different personalities. You're really good at managing people. You could get hired into a different role. You know, I, I think he's in the right place for his skill set and his experience and, you know, going through, a similar process myself, like you really have to zone in on what you've done and what you might be good at. And, um, and it sounds like he's done that very effectively. Yeah. I'll push back on you a little bit though, because the whole managing people thing, like the, the power you have when you don't have authority, you have to sort of exert the same way when you do have any kind of authority. So you, you know, I, I get your point. Like he wasn't managing one as a caddy. Of course not. But the same lessons that help you be persuasive and influential in that situation yeah. is what you have to carry through. So 
Now I get it's a bit different, but like the, that it's a great training ground for how to be persuasive and influential but when you do have some kind of authority or direct reports yeah. or responsibilities as that grows and grows and grows in your career. At least yeah. that's what people hope. So it's it's a it's a great training ground for that kind of responsibility. Yeah. And you heard a little bit of that that he was hired by, you know, his boss or his mentor, and now they're building up a small team and he he mentioned some some hiring tactics and the questions they ask. So it sounds like he's in a kind of traditional cycle of learning and growth, which is very cool, you know, and I'm, I'm not surprised to hear your insight on it because you manage a much larger team and have more experience there. So that's cool. Yeah. I mean, he, he's got a knack for people, right. And I, that's, that's, I don't want to generalize and say every caddy probably does, but like, it seems like that's a big part of the job, right. Knowing your guy, knowing how to really tailor to, to his or her situation and, and, and knowing how to play that right. So, um, and that's, that's also what managing really comes down to. And I, I thought that he, that his perspective on that in terms of not just knowing people on the sales, but also management and hiring side of things will serve him well. And I think that's some good lessons there to really apply, even though his business career is relatively newer. Yeah. Well, my caddy was the exact opposite. So he started caddying. Uh, when he was like 40 and he'd had a pretty established business career. He owned a couple restaurants. He worked in finance in the auto business. He'd done a number of different things successfully. And he's a master at managing people and just like an absolute master at it. I mean, this is from like sitting at bars and restaurants with him and just him shaking his head, like saying, you know, people and like just the way he would deal with like hostesses and waitresses and me, of course, who's a, you know, was a, young, dumb idiot on the tour, but it, it's just, you're right. The skills are so interchangeable. He had so much experience managing and, and managing the other caddies in the ecosystem of the tour. Like we came up to the tour together. He knew nobody, right? Like, I mean, he knew a couple of people from our year on the corn ferry, but he became very well liked. He became very well respected because he was good with people and had never done it in the golf setting, but skills transfer. So what's one, what's one example or story that you can share that really stood out to you from that experience? Really the kind of peer group that my caddy kind of got in with, I mean, he, he really became friends and go sit at lunch, go sit at a rain delay. Like who was he spending his time with? And it was some of the more well-established caddies on the tour. It was one of the more, some of the more well-respected caddies on the tour. And then on the other side of that, there would always be the like rookies coming out with their college buddies or like the kid who just, you know, the box of the world, like coming out fresh out of college. And those guys loved Rusty because he was like, I mean, his uncle Rusty was like a nickname because he was just a solid guy that you could lean on. And I mean, just picture this scene, Rusty sitting there at lunch, some 24 year old caddy comes in. He just got dog cussed by his 24 year old boss because they three putted the last two holes and it's just, that's the tour every week. And Rusty's just got a deep perspective and a, a wide lens of someone that's a lot more experienced. So it's like, buddy, sit down. I'm going to talk you down off this ledge. Okay. I'm going to, and that's the kind of guy he was. And that's what he did for me a million times over. But he tried to soak up from the Jimmy Johnsons of the world, the really like top caddies. And he tried to pass that down to the, to the younger caddies coming out on tour. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good insight. All right. Well, hope everyone enjoyed the episode with Ryan Bauckham talking uh, economics, a little bit of economics of caddying, but mostly just business, the similarities between golf, caddying, and the boardroom. Join us next time on the Course Record Show. Subscribe, give us a shout, and give us any feedback you got.
Thank you so much. Dan, are you have you seen the divot video? I hadn't I hadn't until a couple of weeks ago. Roberto put it on my radar, and now I can't unsee it. Essentially, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and here's like um, I don't want to keep y'all too long, but here's like the thing that was like so ridiculous. The next week we played, we we're in Charlotte, then Columbus, and then Boise. I think it was Boise was the third one, and it was like the first round, like five holes in, and he's taking a practice swing behind the fucking ball again. And I was like, I was like, dude, and I looked at him, I was like, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, shit. And I was like, take two steps back.